In today's episode of the Make Things Better podcast, I had the pleasure of being joined by Laurie Nicholas from MENA. Laurie is skilled in both design and software development. And so in this episode, we learned about what designers can learn from software developers and what software developers can learn from designers. So cheers for listening. And I do hope you enjoy today's episode. And welcome to episode 12 of the Make Things Better podcast. Today I have Laurie Nicholas from Mina. He is a head of product and also user experience. And I'm quite excited to talk to you, Laurie, a little bit about design and how that intersects with software development and the skills in both sort of design and software development. So, um, just well, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Really good, thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. Cheers for coming on. So do you want to just tell us briefly about what you've been up to over the last few years and also what uh, Mina in Sheffield do as well? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um so I'm yeah, as you mentioned, I'm I'm currently serving as kind of uh, yeah, my official job site as head of product and user experience at Mina. Yeah, I, I'm I've always been like a bit of a like a software all rounder, like a bit of a generalist, um kind of just if it's software, I can kind of slot into into most teams, um, but kind of with a real kind of focus on um, on design and development, essentially. And and recently that has sort of transitioned over into the product side. I think a lot of that is by the virtue of the fact that I've spent quite a lot of my career kind of agency side, I've now sort of kind of come spent a long time kind of solving various kind of business problems without necessarily having a thing called products over it. Whereas in house, you do have you do have that kind of recognized sort of product function. So so I work at Mina and we are a startup focused on making paying for electric vehicle charging radically simple, is how we put it. So um our core product is um something called home charge. Uh, the target customers for home charge is fleets. So fleets historically they've you know that's a business with a number of vehicles. Uh, typically in a in a fuel world those vehicles have historically been petrol and diesel. Anybody that drives one of those vehicles as a job um, has a fuel card and they can go to any fuel station and just use the card and fill up the vehicle. With the switch over to um, EVs, which are that's the acronym I'll, I'll use now, standing for electric vehicles, um, with the switch over to EVs, the, the way in which you put energy into an EV is quite different. Um, the main thing being uh, how long it takes to do it. And it requires a kind of a fair kind of shift in terms of your mental model of, of how you how best to optimize what the car is doing at any one point. So with a, a, a kind of a traditional sort of fossil fuel powered vehicle, you can rock up to any any station and fill it up in you know two minutes. Whereas to get the same result on on an EV, um, you're looking at at least an hour, and it might not get you as far. And um, so quite simply, the best the best way to charge charge an EV is when it would be parked anyway. For a lot of people, that would be on their driveway at home overnight. So I mentioned kind of how like the drivers of fleets having um, a fuel car before. Um, so now the, the best way for them to charge the vehicle is on their driveway at home overnight. Therein lies the problem of how does the business pay for that charge? So we've come up with a solution where we, we pay the energy supplier directly. So they um, so we, we integrate kind of various bits of technology to integrate with both the charge point itself and then the, um, the driver's energy supplier in order to measure the amount of energy going into the car and then paying the energy supplier directly. This has kind of numerous benefits in terms of, um, in terms of well, VAT implications for one, um, because there's like a 5% domestic energy VAT that, that's reclaimable by the business. 
Um, and the other is bill shop, um, because you don't necessarily, if you start charging an electric vehicle at home, the cost of that you might not feel for a while. And if you're anything like me and you've got some meter that they can't read for whatever reason and you can't be bothered to go and submit your reading for six months, um, then you might kind of, you might be getting a payroll report and getting reimbursed and you're kind of spending that money every month. And then six months later, you suddenly get, you know, a whacking great kind of, uh, yeah, a thousand pound bill. Um, that, that, yeah, that obviously you feel like the business should pay for, they feel like they've already paid for. So our solution kind of takes that completely away. Co-founded by Ashley Tate, Chris Dalrymple, and uh, Andrew Gunn. Uh, Ash Tate started, has, uh, well, recently exited another business from Sheffield called Split the Bills. Um, so that was splitting household student utility bills. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is built off the foundations, at least of those relationships and the knowledge that he has about working with energy supply in the UK. So in your job as well, I'm guessing a large part is kind of, well, I don't know. Um, how much in your job are you sort of involved in maybe the software development and design of the, the dashboards and that kind of thing that, um, you know, the businesses will view and that individuals can view to see how much they're paying for electricity? Is that like a, a part of your job? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought so. I, I kind of guessed it. It might be. So I had a look at some of those dashboards on the website and I thought they looked really good. And I was quite interested to find out, like, do you, do you find it easier to create designs because of your software development skills? Um, I think I think the answer to that can be yes and no. So I think knowing the technical limitations of your medium, if you're doing any sort of design work, knowing the technical limitations always always helps you sort of know, know where those boundaries are. And make sure that you don't kind of come up with a sort of harebrained scheme that sort of can't be delivered. So, for instance, like you know, it's it's much like designing a car or a computer or anything like it's or a, or a phone. Like you can come out with some like amazing sort of like exterior design or whatever. But like I I couldn't design a car or a phone. Like I feel like I could probably come up with you know I have my own taste and aesthetics and could come up with something that looks alright. But I don't know the full kind of. The, you know, the compromises that you need to make. A car's job is usually about, you know, punching a hole through the air in order to get where you need to go. And that, that's its, that's its sort of main job. It's so like the, the, those sort of like design foundations, making sure it does the job it needs to do before you even think about aesthetics. So, um, knowing the technical limitations is always, always going to help you as a designer, I think. On the other side, what we can, the other thing that it can do is, um, make you think about implementation a little bit too early. So you risk sort of, you know, if you're kind of too close to the metal, as it were, um, you know, maybe you're sort of like, you risk leading with the left hemisphere of your brain a little bit. And you're sort of thinking about implementation when really, and that's the wrong phase. It takes a certain mental discipline to sort of have to turn certain bits on and off and think, no, I'm not going to think about, like, let's just think about what's possible. And that often comes down to, you know, um, in terms of design foundations, you know, it's, it should be focused on the human at the end of it. What, what is the design for? Who is, who is trying to do what? And that's, that's sort of what you should be starting with and not getting too far ahead, um, with, with how it should be implemented. That, that is one of the, I don't know, one of the risks, I suppose. Um, but I think, I think having any sort of design technology crossover is, is quite similar to, it's quite similar to music in terms of the fact that it's sort of highly logical, but then also like sort of highly kind of creative as well that's those sort of those those two things coming together yeah and you mentioned there like uh kind of parts of the brain that may be responsible for different parts when it comes to design or software skills 
how similar do you think software skills and design are and is there much difference in terms of kind of through the brain and what's used to kind of think about different problems, solutions or, or the creativity side of things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how true any of it is, but it's, it's one of those things that's spoken about a lot. Obviously, you've got like, I, I can't, I've probably got the, the hemisphere the wrong way around, but you know, you've got like your left brain's responsible for your sort of logical, um, you know, problem solving. And then right is all about kind of artistry and creativity and all the rest. Um, and I definitely think there's two, um, those are two sides to everything, but and I think, but I do think that both design and software development use both of those skills independently and that's that's come a long way i think so when i when i was working agencies 10 years ago um like creative was almost seen as like oh that's the design the design team and the creatives like they're the only creative people in the business absolute rubbish it's absolutely not kind of and i feel like we're we're much better placed now in terms of the software development industry in recognizing well first first of all i think um making sure that you have like developers involved early in any sort of creative process is like you know that's hugely that's hugely part of making sure that a project's delivered successfully. And um, but just in terms of recognizing that software development, even if it's like coding or system design or something, these are creative disciplines. It's not just it's not some sort of like mathy thing. You have to you have to have that creative side of your brain. It's not all kind of totally logical. And um, in terms of the similarities, you've got. So in in, a, in software you've got you've got foundational functional level stuff. So that's you might be like your architecture or your system stuff. But then you also have like um, code aesthetics, like you know how particular like very particular sort of syntax looks. And that's something where um, you know teams generally have to sort of reach some sort of agreement. Similarly, in like the design side, you've got your overall sort of structural kind of user journey. Does the visual hierarchy make sense? A designer's like number one job is to, is to communicate. Um, and all of that stuff, and then you've got the kind of okay. Now, does it does it look really nice? Does it kind of get people in through the door? Does you know do people look at it? Wow, yeah, that looks that looks great. But, I mean, a lot of that is it's not just a lick of paint. It's clear visual hierarchy and knowing what's important and being able to easily identify elements and intuitively know what to do in where in an interface. Yeah, yeah, you definitely need some skills from both, really, don't you? And I don't think I fully appreciated that until I kind of got into understanding all of this a little bit more. I think as like an outsider, you kind of do see them as two separate things a little bit more than when you start to talk to people more frequently about design and software skills. Um, is there anything that like software developers could learn from designers? So I would say um, not not worrying about what is possible kind of too early. Um, I think, you know, if you were to look at kind of your most sort of Blue sky thinking sort of, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking more of like ideas based design as opposed to what you might think of sort of like, um, like user, like service design, kind of thinking more kind of like, you know, like more abstract. So I think just, just trying to keep an open mind without, because sometimes you might come to something and go, Oh no, there's no way we can deliver that. But actually just by going through that process of creative thought, you can get to something else which is better than where you would have got to if you'd have immediately thought, kind of, right, we're only going to do what's possible. You might go through that journey and then realise the potential of something and then find, even though the core, like something's not possible, it leads to new paths, which are. Um, and I think the other the other thing that you can maybe learn from, and I don't know if it's so much of a design thing, maybe it is more of a product thing, but a lot of it does kind of 
come through from from the design elements is is that it's you know you have to you want to design and build things that people use and as as well you know it's just and this probably applies to to design just as much as development but you can put as much effort as you want into um, something looking amazing or some sort of amazing scalable technical solution or anything like that but it doesn't really matter if nobody's going to use it you have to you have to build in iterations and sort of prove demand and make sure that you're getting feedback early and often and that the people who are going to use the thing are involved in every stage of the process and are, and are spoken to you know on a weekly basis i would hope yeah that makes sense there. and and um, is there anything that designers could learn from software developers uh, so i i think i think software developers often think about scalability early which and i find sometimes um Designers don't necessarily do that, which is almost, I guess it's almost contradicting the answer I gave last time. But I do think, I do think that designers thinking about scalability early should definitely be a higher concern than often it is. Like, for instance, you know, we've got, at Mini, you know, we've got fleets varying from, you know, sort of a one man band to, you know, a company that's got five cars. It's very small. Everybody knows each other to huge fleets of thousands of drivers in which, you know, fleet management is a proper job. Now, Designing something for that first group that then scales to the second can be quite kind of daunting in terms. But really, it's about it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to design that first on, but it's making sure that you've got the foundations in place so that once you reach scale, that you can that you can deal with that. So again, going back to what I was talking about before, I think talking about like structure and hierarchy being more important than aesthetics. And um, so I think one of the things that that developers know is that you spend a lot more time reading code in order to maintain it than you do writing new code. So making sure that the stuff you're writing is, and as well as part that's not just you, it's working in a team as well. You're writing code that other people are going to have to read and go, oh, right, I know how to change this without breaking anything. You've got like tests in place to make sure you cover that as well. But I think designers can learn a lot from that in terms of making sure that the what they're designing in terms of communicating um, can be extended upon in future. So if they're trying to communicate a message, what if that changes? How are we going to evolve it? And making sure that you've got clear sort of structural foundations in place. Yeah. So do you think, I don't know if I'm like interpreting this correctly, but is there something there about designers considering how the code could maybe be like sort of adapted then and changed in the future based on the design changing as well? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily thinking about the design. I think there's definitely, um, you see a lot more uh, these days, people coming up with like, rather than just everything being built from scratch, designers might come up with like, a de- they'll have a design system. So like a component library, like this is what a button looks like, this is what a menu looks like, and developing one of these. Sort of, so we we have we have one at me, it's called Latimer, Latimer UI. And it's essentially building blocks, like a, a box of Lego bricks for user interfaces. Um, so, so I think that is that's part of it in terms of being able to scale stuff. But I think what I, what I was trying to to get to is more about that sort of um, the designer's key job, which is communicating information. It's me, making sure that the person that's that's looking at the screen knows what does what. They know what's more important than something else. Um, if they think they need to do something but aren't sure where to find it, then the, there is sort of you know a breadcrumb trail to sort of lead them in the right direction and you can hopefully sort of end up with it being um, intuitive 
And in terms of how that information is structured, um, having a good foundation there, as opposed to just kind of you know, sticking it all on a screen, will generally make kind of thinking, right, well, I'm going to have a menu here. It might only have like one thing in it, but I know that on the roadmap, we've got like three more things coming in it. So making sure that that's extensible um, is, a, is a really key part. And knowing how it's going to evolve enables you to do the right things. The, the, um, the sort of the, the uh, slightly cliched, I guess, the, um, the Spotify agile sort of skateboard to scooter to car diagram in terms of like, you know, customer happiness at every sort of stage of product delivery. Thinking about that from design, but not just in terms of uh, technical stuff as well. Okay, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So, my final question, Larry, uh, this is like a really broad question, but what can people do to make things better? Um, super, super cheesy. I was going back to, uh, to Bill and Ted on this one, um, who, uh, yeah, who says, be excellent to each other, party on beans. <laughs> Good quote, Mark. Thanks for coming on. And um, where can people find you and, and Mina? Yeah, if you can find us at mina.co.uk. Um, and I think on Twitter we might be Mina EV. We're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and, and Instagram. All the, 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 those, I think those are our sort of main social channels. Um, and yeah, if, if anybody's looking for a solution for, um, not just, uh, home charging, but, um, public and uh, workplace charging or home charger installations for businesses. Um, come give us a shout. Uh, cheers, Lai, and I hope everyone has enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.